Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for coming to Bible class. This is the gospel according to Moses, lesson five. This is my last shot at you here before our new semester of, of life groups begin. Thank you for your faithfulness and your attention and uh, I think I was gone last Wednesday, wasn't I? Was I here last Wednesday or the one before? I forget. Anyway, I know in my third lesson, I showed you what I thought was something very interesting and amazing about a phrase that was used in the first chapter of the book of John. In the beginning was... The Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And then tried to show you how that that same phrase is used in Hebrews chapter 1, the first chapter of Hebrews. Thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth. And how that it all started with the very first verse in the first chapter of the first book of Moses. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And I'm trying to show you how those things are daisy-chained together through the scripture. Tonight, I want you to consider this. It's in Matthew chapter 21. And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem and were come to Bethphage unto the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway you shall find a a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them unto me. And if any man say aught unto you, you shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee meek, sitting on a donkey, and a colt, the fowl of a donkey. This, obviously, is uh, referring to a prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9. This is what it says in Zechariah 9 and verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly, riding on a donkey, and upon a colt, the fowl of a donkey. I I talked to you something several weeks ago about something called inner and intertextuality. And uh, this is intertextuality. This is when a writer quotes an earlier verse to interpret or explain what's going on. Matthew declared very loudly, Jesus is the king that Zechariah wrote about. But remember, it was Jesus that first told them to go get the, the colt. Matthew's just writing about what Jesus has said. And uh, when I was studying these verses, it reminded me of, of something that is in Genesis 49, this first book of Moses. He, uh, in the 49th chapter of Moses, Jacob is blessing the boys. And uh, the first one is Reuben, the second one is Simeon, third one is Levi. And pretty much what he says to them, first three boys, is negative. And then he comes to boy number four, whose name is Judah. This is Genesis 49 and verse 8. Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children, or your brothers, are going to bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp, 
From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, and as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Watch this. Binding his foal unto the vine and his donkey's colt unto the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine and his teeth white with milk. I have always been fascinated with the 49th chapter of Genesis. I can't ever read these verses without reminding you and remembering someone that's known in the Bible as the demoniac of Gadara. Matthew's going to put a map behind me and it's going to show this thing here. This is the Arabian Peninsula here. And uh, over here is Africa or Egypt to the left. And uh, you've got this, don't look at this big one up here. Look at the little one. See where that word Jordan is? There's a little triangle up there. That's also known as the Arabian Peninsula. That's where we're talking about. Because when Israel came out of Egypt, they went across, right? When you look at that Red Sea, that sliver there, up, up there, there's the Red Sea. So they went across that. They were to go across that tiny triangle up there. And right below the name Jordan, that's, that's the Jordan River. Not just the nation called Jordan today. That's the Jordan River and the Dead Sea. That's that, that water there. And so this is important because... When they came out of Egypt, um, I've, here is this, see, do you have the one with the wonderings? There you go. Here's Egypt over here to the left. Here's that small triangle that I talked to you about, Sinai Peninsula. Over here, you see the word Midian. If you just follow that up, there will be the, the Dead Sea. On top of that will be, you know, the river. This, watch this journey. They're coming out of here. They go down to the south. And they go up to this place. Notice this place number 12. Kadesh Barnea. Now, this is a very simplified map. But if you've got a study Bible, it'll show that they went around Kadesh Barnea again and again and again and again and again. In fact, it says in Numbers 14 and verse 33, and your children shall wander in the wilderness 40 years. Watch and bear your whoredoms until your carcasses be wasted in the wilderness. Every book that I have read drew me to Deuteronomy chapter 1. I, I don't know how many secondary sources I used, but listen to this verse. I, I don't know how many sermons I've heard, how many lessons I've heard, how many I've taught. I have never heard anybody refer to this verse. Deuteronomy 1 and verse 2. These, there are 11 days journey from Horeb. If you know your Bible, Horeb is the same name given to Sinai. There are 11 days journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir under Kadesh Barnea. In other words, this trip from crossing the Red Sea until getting across the Jordan River 
should have taken them 11 days. But instead of taking it 11 days, it took them 40 years. Men who should have entered into Canaan when they were 20 or 60 years old. 11 days as opposed to 40 years. I wonder how many wasted lives and years were squandered because of the impact of the frightened, faithless testimony of 10 men who said, I don't think we can do this. How many children or casualties and can't enjoy the enjoyment or better quality of life through no fault of their own? They grow up disadvantaged until they're no longer in the effects of someone else's choices and someone else's faithless life. This is the second verse in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy has 28 chapters. If you study it, you know that Deuteronomy is the last sermon of Moses. The last time he talked to these people. And what he's doing is recounting their history. Kadesh Barnea. Does anybody know what the, na- the word bar means? Does anybody know? Sun. Sun up. Very good. Is it possible that there's anybody here that knows what the word Kadesh means? When you put them together, Kadesh Barnea literally means the fickled son of holiness. Wow. No wonder they turned an 11-day trip into a 40-year maze of walking around in circles. But if we go back to this map that showed them crossing that one, notice they're in a circle around Kadesh Barnea, and then they're, they're going up here to the right through Edom. What we know is Israel, where the land of Canaan, That's the stuff up here to the left at the top. See that? There's Canaan and Hebron and Jerusalem and Jericho and Gilgal. See that? And obviously to the left is the Mediterranean Sea. But they went out here and they they went to the east and that's where they crossed the Jordan River. So they're, they're headed west, going across the Jordan River, coming out of Moab into the land of Canaan. This is very important because this is what it says in Joshua 18 and verse 7. But the Levites have no part among you, for the priesthood of the Lord is their inheritance. And Gad and Reuben and half the tribe of Manasseh have received their inheritance beyond Jordan on the east. When you study this, these tribes have come in from the east. They're headed west to go across Jordan. And two and a half tribes say, we're staying right here. The troop or the tribe of of Gad and Reuben and half. Boy, there's probably a message there. Whatever happened to the other half? Half the tribe of Manasseh stayed on the other side of Jordan. Why did they do it? Because it was great pasture land. They said, this is a great place for us to raise our herds and our children. Now watch the prophecy of Jacob to Gad in Genesis 49 and verse 19. Gad A troop is going to overtake you and overcome him, but he shall overcome at the last. So Jacob told his boy, you're going to be overrun by a troop. Another word for troop is legion. It's an army. Now I want you to watch the prophecy to Judah in verse 8. Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. 
Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah was the fourth boy. But if, if you know your Bible, Jacob had, you know, he wanted to marry Rachel and he, his father-in-law swaps him and he wakes up the next day in the honeymoon suite with Leah. He had worked seven years. He thought he was getting Rachel. He ended up getting Leah. Bible said he worked seven more years to get Rachel. Rachel was the one he really wanted. But the truth is, is that boy number four, Judah, his mother was Leah. Was Leah. And even though Rachel was the wife he obviously loved the most. It was his son by Leah that was given preeminence over all the others. You know that the name Judah means praise. Jacob said, Judah, all your brothers are going to praise you. Their children are going to bow down before you. Your hand will be on the neck of the enemies. The story is given to us by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew 8, Mark 5, Luke 8. The story of the guy known as the demoniac of Gadara. All you got to do is take the last couple letters, take A-R-A off of Gadara, and he's really the demoniac of Gad. Because what had happened so often in Israel's history, they couldn't be invaded from the West because the West was Mediterranean Sea. They're being invaded from the East. And when the invaders would come, the first land held by the Israelites was the land of Gad. They would come into the land of Gad, read the Bible, Judah would basically get the troops together and they would go and push the invaders out of their Eastern border on the other side of Jordan. Now you fast forward that to the New Testament. You've got Matthew, Mark, and Luke talking about this guy from Gad who lives in the graveyard, who cuts himself. There's no mention of cows here now. The only mention I have in these chapters are pigs. I always wondered, what were them Jews doing with those pigs? You ever heard of Thorn, Thorn Apple Valley? It's the largest meat packing house in the Detroit area. I did a little homework today. It was started in 1948 by a Jew, Jewish immigrant that came here after the Second War by the name of Henry Dorfman. Good Jew, Jewish guy selling us bacon and sausage and pickled pig feet. Them Jews are still selling pigs to Gentiles. Just like they did back then. Not much has changed. You see, the enemy would come in to Gad. Judah would be the leader put his hand on the neck of the enemies and threw them out. So when you come to these chapters of Matthew 8, Mark 5, and Luke 8, it's the fulfillment of Jacob's prophecy. The troop, the legion, has invaded a man from Gad. He does exactly what Jacob said he was going to do. He was going to run and fall down in front of Judah. Judah was then going to put his hand on the neck of the enemies that had invaded his brother and throw him out. And that is exactly what Jesus did. I heard a man years ago. There's three kinds of legions as near as we can tell. There was a Roman legion with 12,000 soldiers. There was a Roman legion with 6,000 soldiers. There was a Roman legion with 2,000 soldiers. So let's take the smallest one. This guy's got 2,000 devils in him. And yet it says 
he ran and worshiped Jesus. The question was, so what's our excuse? If this guy could worship Jesus with 2,000 problems, I think we can. I got two that I can think of right now, two problems. This guy could worship the Lord with 2,000. You know what happened when the Lord threw those pigs out? The pigs ran over a cliff and drowned. They committed suicide. Pigs won't tolerate what a lot of people will. Pigs had enough sense to get this out of them one way or the other. But that's not my lesson. My lesson is in 49 and 11. Binding his foal under the vine and the donkey's colt under the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. Wow. Zechariah 9 and 9 and Genesis 49 and 11 are the only two verses I can find in the entire Old Testament where those two words are found together. The fowl and the colt of a donkey. And the only other place you will find those verses in the New Testament is Matthew 21. The account of the young donkey ridden by Jesus when he went into Jerusalem on Passover day. When Jacob was blessing Judah, he referred to Judah as a lion. I, I, years ago, I did something. I, I don't want to reinvent the wheel tonight. It's in the book of Ezekiel. It's in the book of Isaiah chapter 6. And it's in Revelation. There's, there's, only, there's, there's lots of different kinds of angels in the Bible. There, there, there are... Uh, I've heard of people say, Michael, the archangel. Michael is not an archangel. He's an, or he, they say, Michael, the archangel. He's not an archangel. He's an archangel. Just like in some places there's a bishop and there's a higher, there's an archbishop. It's obvious there are angels. And then there's archangels. There, there, there are beings recorded in a scripture known as cherubims. But only one time in the Bible, in Isaiah 6, do we find a word called seraphim. A very unique kind of angel. Ezekiel describes them. Isaiah does. And so does John years later in Revelation. He said they had, they had six wings. They had four faces. And he said they never changed direction. They just went any which direction the face pointed. I don't know what that means. What I do know is these faces are mentioned like this. The first was a face of a lion. The second was the face of an oxen. The third was the face of a man. The fourth was the face of an eagle. I, uh, I think there is a very strong argument to be made that these are the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Ezekiel talked about they had four faces and six wings. Isaiah doesn't describe the faces because he said the faces were covered by the wings. But when you get into Revelation, it's the same thing that Ezekiel said, six wings, four faces. You have to understand, uh, I've used the example before like of Teddy Roosevelt. You could uh, write a book about Teddy Roosevelt in his early years. Um, came from an amazing family. Teddy Roosevelt's wife died. He pretty much left his kids to his brothers and sisters to take care of. And he went out west and played cowboy for a couple of years. 
If you've ever heard the phrase teddy bear, that came from Teddy Roosevelt of a famous picture of him shooting a bear out in Yellowstone. You could uh, write a whole book about him being president. Same guy, just different things. This is what I'm convinced Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are. Just as I've taught you in years past about the five offerings in the book of Leviticus, the burn offering and, you know, peace offering, sin offering, trespass offering, on and on. It's all talking about Calvary. It's all showing different aspects of what Jesus did for us on the cross. This is what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because Matthew is writing, there's, there's no question among people that really study this thing, and I'm not promoting myself as some great scholar, but I can read their books. They, they, they're all in agreement. The book of Matthew was written to a Jewish audience. And, and this is why the book of Matthew, this is how it begins. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Ad, ad, Matthew is proving in his book that Jesus Christ is Messiah. He is Lord he is king. He is what is known as the lion. You study the Old Testament, every tribe had what was known as a standard or a flag. And the Bible describes what was on the flag or the standard of every tribe. The flag that flew above Judah's army always had a lion on it. This is what it says in, Romans, or in Revelation chapter 5. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written on the backside, sealed with seven seals. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor on earth nor either under the earth was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept. Because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders said unto me, Weep not. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. This is one of the most pictorial things you'll ever find in the Bible describing what Jesus was able to do that nobody else could do. I'll give it to you quickly. Matthew shows us the lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the king. Mark shows us the next, the ox. Ox, you have to understand Israel, they're, 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 these are farmers. It's an agricultural community. An ox was a John Deere tractor. It was the most powerful servant that they had. When you read the book of Mark, Mark says something that none of the other books do. It shows how Jesus was the great servant and what he accomplished. Luke, Luke's not a Jew. Luke's a Gentile doctor. That's why when you, there are things in the book of Luke that are in no other gospels. Luke shows us the man, Christ Jesus. John shows us the eagle. One that can fly higher and see further than anyone else. Because Luke shows us the son of man, but John shows us the son of God. Notice what it says in Genesis 49. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Here's the message. The scepter shall not leave Judah. He'll keep a firm grip on the command staff until the ultimate ruler comes and the nations obey him. This is a curious word, Shiloh. If you study the Old Testament, I found this verse, Joshua 18 and verse 1. And the whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh and set up the tabernacle of the congregation there, and the land was subdued before them. The tabernacle of Moses was built with a sacrificial offering 
in Exodus 25 through chapter 40. If you know your Bible, it had been taken up and put, taken down 42 times in the next 40 years. But when they came into the land of Canaan, Joshua set up the tabernacle at a place called Shiloh. And it stayed there. It is a prophecy about Jesus Christ. Because what an amazing picture this is of the Spirit of God. That all through that Old Testament just wandered from one place to the next. But finally, God took up residence in flesh. Jesus said, nobody's coming to the Father except through me. And the prophecy is that once the scepter is in the hands of the king from Judah, there would never be another king. I was speaking here two months ago to you and I really felt right while I was speaking, the Lord gave me something. Because most people know Isaiah 9 and 6. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and thou shalt call his name. Whose name? The son's name. Wonderful. I have no problem calling Jesus wonderful. Counselor. See, for years I had it wrong. I thought that phrase counselor meant like he was our psychiatrist. That's what I thought it meant, that he gave us great counsel. It doesn't mean that at all. It means he's our lawyer. When the judge says counsel approach the bench, that's what we're dealing with here. One scripture calls Jesus our advocate. John, our advocate. Greek translation of advocate is defense attorney. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He's the prosecuting attorney. Jesus is our defense attorney. He's our advocate. He's our counselor. Wonderful counselor, mighty God. I have no problem calling Jesus any of that. Then it says, everlasting father. Wow. You're going to have a hard time calling Jesus the father if you believe father and son are two separate people. But you won't have a problem doing this if you understand that father is spirit and son is flesh. And the father or the spirit dwelt in the flesh or the son. I didn't say that. Jesus said that. Jesus said, when you see me, you see the father. The theory of the Trinity said there's God the father and God the son and they're co-equal. Well, that's not what Jesus said in John 14. He said, I by myself can do nothing. It's the father that dwelleth in me that does the works. And we know that he prayed and prayer is not equality, ladies and gentlemen. It's when one is depending upon another. The father and son are not equal. Son is flesh. Father is spirit. That's why when you say the son of God, what is the son? See, if, if the son is God, then God died on a cross. But if you understand that son is flesh and God, according to John 4, 24, is spirit, you can literally say what Jesus said, that the spirit dwelt in the son. So when you say the son of God, you're saying the flesh that the spirit had. Because there's only one legal liquid that can deal with sin and that's blood. And if God remains spirit, he can't help any of us. But if God takes on flesh and dies on the cross and sheds that sinless blood for us, now we got something powerful. And this is why this is so important. He's wonderful. He's our defense attorney. He's the mighty God. He's father in flesh. Watch. Prince of peace. Prince of Peace. I want to remind you that a prince changes nothing. That's why this curious fellow by the name of Melchizedek is so important. Because in John 14, Abraham's nephew Lot was living in a place called Sodom. And these four kings combined their armies and invaded many cities, but invaded Sodom and the twin city Gomorrah and took the people captive. Just basically pillaged the city, 
took the people captive. Probably could have got away with it if they wouldn't have kidnapped Lot and his family. This is when you have this powerful prayer of Abraham dealing with this. You get a little insight into how great Abraham was because Abraham has an army of his own. And Abraham's army confronts four combined armies and whoops them bad and kills all four of them kings. As a matter of fact, if you have a study Bible, on the margin, it'll say the slaughter of the kings. He takes all this stuff that they have been pillaging from these cities and basically takes the people of Sodom and say, whatever is yours, you can have it. If that's your microwave, fine. If that's your fridge, fine. If that's your shotgun, fine. Everything else is mine. And Abraham was a wealthy man when he came out of Egypt, but now he is fabulously wealthy. And he meets this very curious person in Genesis 14, known as Melchizedek. There, as long as I can remember, people have been fighting about who Melchizedek was. Some people say he was a priest. Some people will say he was something known as a theophany. A theo the word theophany means a brief appearance of God. I always struggled with that because that one verse in John 3.16 always stood out to me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It doesn't say he appeared a few times, flashed here and there throughout the Old Testament. No, it says the only time God took on flesh was in the incarnation and revealed to us his saving name, Jesus Christ, the only begotten son. My good friend Edwin Harper settled this question forever for me a couple weeks ago when he said, Harold, read to me Hebrews 7 and 4. And this is what it says, talking about Melchizedek. Now consider how great this man was. And he said, see there, Harold? He was a man. He was a man. He was a priest. But if you know your Old Testament, the priesthood in the tabernacle of Moses came from the tribe of Levi. But Melchizedek didn't come from Levi. He comes from Judah. Because it's trying to show us that the Levitical priesthood of the law can only take us so far. And that's why there's this prophecy in Psalms 110 and verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. David, if you'll study your Bible, David wore three hats. He filled three roles. In fact, David was anointed three different times. Three different times. First of all, as a young boy, he was anointed by the prophet Samuel. Second of all, in 2 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 4, David was anointed king over Israel. But in 2 Samuel chapter 5, David was anointed king over all the tribes. He's anointed three times. And these three anointings coincide with the three roles of David. First, would anyone doubt the Psalms contain amazing prophecies? Many of them from David. David was a prophet. Second, David, of course, was a king. And third, David was a priest. He is an amazing picture of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Because Jesus Christ also had these three offices. Prophet, king, and priest. Do you know that they had this thing in the holy place in the tabernacle of Moses known as showbread. When you went in past the laver, you went into that tent. To your left was known as the menorah, that seven-tiered candlestick. Right in front of you was a, an altar, a golden altar of incense. To your right was a table known as the table of showbread. It probably looked like pancakes. The only people that were supposed to eat the showbread was the Levite priesthood. But the Bible said 
that David went into the holy place and ate the showbread. He didn't come from Levi. David came from the tribe of Judah. As a matter of fact, when you study that, it's now known as the bread of witness. And there's a great lesson there. I don't care who you are. If you're hungry, you come unto me and drink. Come unto me and eat. I'm the bread of life. I'm the water of life. Oh, this is just for the preachers. No, 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 no. It's for anybody that's hungry. Do you know that David, David was running from Saul and he ended up at a place called Nob. They had set the tabernacle up there and a guy by the name of Doeg spied on David and saw him go to what I would call his pastor. He went back to Saul and told Saul, I found David, he's at Nob. Saul said, I want you guys to get together and I want you to go down there and I want you to kill every one of them priests and I want you to kill that high priest. And all of those men said, Mm-mm, I'm not touching them. But Doeg said, I'll do it, I'll do it. And he specifically went down there and killed the pastor. When David got back to Nob, his pastor's dead. And he took something from the tabernacle of Moses, which was set up at Nob. He took the ephod, the linen coat, one of the seven garments that the priest wore. When David brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Zion in 2 Samuel 6, the Bible said he, was, he took off his kingly robes and he was girded with a linen ephod. What was it? It was the blood-spattered coat of his pastor. David is not a Levite, but he's got a priest garment on. This is when his wife said, you uncovered yourself in the people of Israel. You, you, you embarrassed me the way you acted there today. It doesn't mean that he got naked. It means that he, he wasn't going to act like a king. He took that ephod and he started dancing and shouting in front of the Ark of the Covenant. Do you, do you, know, do you know that Michelle or Michael, however you want to pronounce her name, David's wife, the Bible said she had no child until the day of her death. A lot of preachers say God smote her with barrenness. I can't find it in the Bible. What I can find is that David ignored her for the rest of her life. Who was Michelle? Who was Michael? She was the daughter of a king by the name of Saul. You want to know how she became a king's wife? Blood was shed. David was supposed to kill 100 Philistines. Instead, he killed 200 and gave evidence of their slaughter. In other words, she's bought with blood. She's from a royal family. She's the bride of a king. She's a great picture of the church. But she mocked his worship. And when she mocked his worship, she never gave birth to anything because the king ignored her. We as the church of the living God, we've been bought with blood. We're the, we're the bride. We're, we're espoused to a king. We better make sure we're worshipers. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. That's right. And people that disdain worship, they're never going to give birth to anything. Because the Lord doesn't want anything. This is what he's going to say. Lord, we did this in your name, that in your name, and this in your name. He said, depart from me, workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Now, if you do your homework in the Bible, it'll say something like this, that, that Adam knew his wife Eve and she bare children. That word knew or know in, it implies a physical union that produces offspring. I don't know anybody that does more in Jesus' name than Pentecostal people. But I'm telling you, there will be quote unquote Pentecostal people who will be lost 
because all of their salvation is based in, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. And he's going to say, I never did know you. There never was an intimacy between me and you that produced offspring. Are you close to Jesus? Are you staying closer to him? Are you producing the right stuff? You don't want to be barren. Bible, I, I, I never did do it. I always wanted to do it. I wanted to preach a message to you called spots, spots. Because the Bible said he's coming back for a glorious church without spot or wrinkle. Spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Because in the book of Jude, it says, these people are spots in your feast of charity. That's a bad deal, you know. I, I, I just got this jacket clean. My mother said, for goodness sakes, your jacket's dirty. So I took it to the dry cleaners because I don't know what I had in there. Pizza, I don't know, spaghetti. I, I don't know how you eat spaghetti, but spaghetti, it doesn't matter what I do. It's like a grenade that goes off. And it's like shrapnel. Just boom, boom, boom. It's just there. I, I don't want to... I, wanna, I don't want to preach in front of you with a jacket that's got a spot on it. I, the Bible talks about a wedding garment. I, I, would you go to a gynecologist whose hair was all messed up and his shirt was pulled out of his britches, you know, and, and he had one pant leg short in the other and may his fly was down and say, yeah, I'll take good care of your little baby. I don't think so. Do you know that the way you look is almost 70% of conversation and maybe even more? I, 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 how do you get wrinkles? By sitting down. How do you get spots? By being sloppy. I don't want to be sloppy and I don't want to sit down on the job. I want to be a glorious church. I don't want to have a spot. I don't want to have a wrinkle. Or any such thing. Or any such thing. And, and, and this is powerful, ladies and gentlemen, because consider how great this man was that Abraham paid tithes to him. He's a priest, but he's not from Levi. He, he, there's something else going on here because it said, because see, Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. He was not from the tribe of Levi, but his lineage, his priesthood, his, he, he got his ministerial license from Melchizedek, not from Levi. And, 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 and this, is, this is so important because in the same way that David was prophet priest and king. Jesus Christ is our prophet. He's our great high priest and he's our king. Watch Hebrews 7 and verse 2. To whom also gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness and after that also king of Salem. Did you ever hear a Jew say shalom? That means peace. King of peace. But, but look, look, it's king of righteousness, king of Salem, which is King of peace. Whoa. Isaiah called him Prince of Peace. Not this one. This one refers to Jesus as King of Priest. Or King of Peace, rather. I remind you that we live in a, in a, in a republic. The, the, the story is that years ago when the Continental Congress was over, a lady, I believe it was Benjamin Franklin, they asked him, the woman asked him, what kind of government did you give us, Mr. Franklin? He said, a republic, ma'am, if you can keep it. If you can keep it. I remind you that we live in a republic by the people, of the people, for the people. Do you know there are seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelation? And six of them are known as the church in Ephesus, the church in Sardis, the church in Thyatira. But watch Revelation 3 and 14. And under the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, right. In other words, this wasn't the church in Laodicea. It was the church of the Laodiceans. There's a, there's a, there's a Latin phrase, vox populi, vox dia, which means the voice of the people has become the voice of God. This is not your church. This is our church. That's a republic. We're not in a republic. We are in a kingdom. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. I remind you that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. The kingdom of Jesus Christ is not a constitutional republic. This is a monarchy. One sits on the throne. He's the boss. We work for him. 
we work for him. Or should, you and I have to lift him, elevate him, take him out of the hall, put him on the throne, put him in charge of our lives. If you will do that, this was the prophecy of the increase of his peace, there'll be no end. It'll just keep getting better. But that's only for people that are willing to submit and put him on the throne of their life and say, you're in charge. See, Jesus doesn't just have, he, he doesn't just have life. He is life. He doesn't just have wisdom. He is wisdom. You understand that? He, he's not just a spirit. He's spirit. Everything else came from him. He doesn't have life. He is life. All other life came from him. In him was life. And life was the light of men. Oh, Jesus. That's why we got to go to the well. We got to go to the vault. We got to go to the source. You and you alone, oh Lord, have the words to eternal life. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Notice what it says in Esther chapter. Remember, here's Esther, Jewish girl. Has chosen now to be the queen. A man's trying to euthanize and destroy all the Jews. And all of a sudden her uncle, a man by the name of Mordecai, looked at that girl now and all of her finery and this amazing position that she holds. And he says, don't you understand? You have been brought to the kingdom for such a time as this. Don't you understand that the reason you're on the throne of where you are right now is because the Lord, the, the puppet master of the universe has, has, has strategically placed you in a position to plead our case. The Bible said that Mordecai put sackcloth underneath his garment. And then it says this, but there was a law written that no one could come before the king wearing sackcloth. So it says Mordecai came to the gate of the king's house, but that's as far as he could get. Sackcloth is burlap. Tote sacks when I was a kid, itchy, scratchy stuff. It's a great picture of mourning. It's a great picture of something negative. It's a great picture of, of, of anything but him. The Bible said that Esther put on her royal apparel. Do you know there's a verse that says, I'll give you beauty for ashes. I'll give you the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Esther put on her royal apparel. Now, my mother liked Chanel number five. I believe it's Chanel number five. See, Esther had Chanel number five, six, seven, eight, and nine. She's a queen. She took a bath in that stuff. And she got in front of the fan, blowing towards the king. He's over there at his desk doing all of his stuff. All of a sudden, whoa. And he looks up, and there she is. But this is what it says in the book of Esther chapter eight. And the king held out his scepter. The scepter is the royal welcome. If he wouldn't have held out that scepter, they would have drug her away. She put her life in her hands, but she knew according to her uncle, that's why I'm here to save my people. And she came close to the king and result of that is Haman end up hanging on the very same gallows that he built for Mordecai. Amazing. <laughs> absolutely amazing to me. But my, my, my point is that eight and four said the king held out the golden scepter. This is Hebrews one and verse eight. But under the sun, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. You remember that thing I read to you an hour ago? He said that, that, that one day the scepter would be placed in the hands of the, the, the scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh come or the one to whom it ultimately belongs. And that's why there are two different genealogies in Matthew and Luke. Because if you read Matthew chapter one, Matthew worked for the IRS. He's a bean counter. He's an accountant. Luke's a doctor. They're both brilliant people. And when you study Matthew 1 and Luke chapter 3, they are identical from Abraham to David. But notice what it says in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 6. And Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon of her 
that had been the wife of Uriah. David's descendant in Matthew 1 and 6 is Solomon. You see that? Now watch Luke chapter 3 and verse 31. Which was the son of Malia, which is the son of Menan, which is the son of Matatha, which was the son of Nathan, which was the son of David. Matthew said that David's descendant in the lineage was Solomon. But if you know your Bible, David had more kids than just Solomon. In fact, David had a boy by the name of Nathan, who he named after the preacher that rebuked him publicly and shamed him. Matthew records the genealogy of Jesus through Joseph. Watch, here's Matthew 1 and 16. And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. Watch Luke chapter 3 and verse 23. And Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, which is the son of Eli. Whoa. Matthew chapter 1 says that Joseph's daddy was a guy named Jacob. Here it says, a son of Heli. Every book that I have read, I have combed it as much as I possibly can. Joseph, the husband of Mary, was a descendant of David through Solomon. And ultimately, Solomon's son, Jeconias. Here's Matthew 1 and verse 11. And Josias begat Jeconias and his brethren about the time they were carried away to Babylon. You see, if Joseph had been the biological father of Jesus, that would have disqualified Jesus from sitting on the throne of David. Listen to the prophecy of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 22, Jeremiah is rebuking this king by the name of Jeconiah, who is a horrible man. Thus saith the Lord, write ye this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper, sitting upon the throne of David, ruling any more in Judah. The lineage of Joseph ended with Jeconiah because the prophet Jeremiah said you're going to be childless nobody from you is going to end up on the throne of Jesus throne of David but Luke records the genealogy through Mary Joseph wasn't the biological father of Jesus but Mary was the biological mother of Jesus and she's also a descendant of David but not through Solomon and not through Jeconiah. She descended from David through Nathan. And we know, according to Matthew 1, that the father of Joseph was a guy named Jacob, but in Luke 3, it's saying was the son of Heli. Every book that I can find says this, Mary's lineage was given in the name of her husband. Joseph's father was Jacob, but her daddy was Eli. The king had to come from the tribe of Judah, and Mary preserved the lineage by coming through Nathan. No wonder the angel said, Fear not, thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, shall be called the son of the highest. The Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Listen to the next verse that I've never ever talked to you about in Jacob's prophecy to Judah, binding his foal under the vine and his donkey's colt under the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine 
and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine and his teeth white with milk. He washes his garment in wine and his clothes, not in the juice of grapes, but in the blood of grapes. Listen to this verse I found today. Wow. In Isaiah 63. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I speak in, I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why are your garments red like of those treading out the winepress? Here's the NIV. Who is this coming from Edom, from Basra, with his garments stained crimson? Who is this robed in splendor, striding forth in the greatness of his strength? It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath, and their blood spattered my garments. I stained all of my clothing. Sound familiar? Listen to what I found in the last book in the Bible. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, and that with it he should smite the nations and rule them with a rod of iron. And he that treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of the Almighty God, he hath on his vesture a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. This is what it says. He was bruised for our iniquity, wounded for our transgressions. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. That's why he said, I did this all by myself. I had to one that I, I, I had to deal with all this anger. I had to deal with all this wrath. I had to deal with all this sin. And my vestures and my garments have been dipped in blood. But this world has marked me for the last time. When I come back the next time, I'm coming back as King of Kings. I'm coming back as Lord of Lords. All because he said, go get that donkey's coat. He goes all the way back to that prophecy that Jacob gave to Judah. I'm telling you, the lion of the tribe of Judah is no less than Jesus Christ. He is Shiloh, where the Lord set up his residence in flesh. And that scepter is in his hand now. And it's never, it's, it's, the, it's the ultimate right one. He's in charge. The Bible said, the Lord almighty omnipotent reigneth. And in the Greek language, that is a present progressive verb. In other words, it means I'm reigning and I'm never going to quit reigning. I'm just going to, that's why it says, and of his kingdom, there's never going to be an end. Get in on that deal now. Get in on that deal now. Make him king. For goodness sakes, there are too many people that Jesus is just prince of peace. There's no everlasting peace as long as he remains prince. Make him king. Get him on the throne of your life. Lord Jesus, I'm here to do your bidding. I said it to you. It's not original with me. My friend Mark Morgan taught me two weeks ago. If you want to see his power, accomplish his purpose. If you accomplish his purpose and do his bidding, he'll stand by you. If you bind it, I'll back you up, Peter. If you loose it, I'll back you up. But have you been doing any loosen? Have you been doing any binding? We're supposed to do both of them. Some things need tied up because they've been loose way too long. Other things need to be let go because they've been chained up way too long. The Bible said that Paul and Silas sang while they were in jail. Everybody. The Bible said the prisoners heard them. But when they began to sing, God sent an earthquake. 
It says all the prisoners' doors were open. I must say it to you again. Freedom did not come to people that didn't know God in jail until freedom, first of all, came to people that did know God who were in jail. When the church gets free, everybody else is going to get free. When the church gets loose, amen, other things are going to get. When the church starts tying things up, the Bible said you can bind her nobles with fetters of iron and her kings with this privilege, this honor as every saint. We're going to baptize somebody again tonight. Baptize somebody Monday at prayer. Baptize somebody tonight. I want that thing to have it. And the Lord added daily, daily to the church such as should be saved. Come with me around this altar and let's rejoice with this baptism right now. Amen. Amen. Jesus said Moses wrote about me, and I believe he did. All in that 49th chapter, and wrote what Jacob said to them kids. He was talking about the ultimate king that would ride on that donkey into that city. And he said, oh, Jerusalem, if you just knew what today was, if you just knew what today was, I'd gather you under me like a chicken desert for chicks. But you don't have any idea what today is, and you don't have any idea who I am. I don't want to be, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? Al, what about you? Who do you say I am? You're the king. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Oh, in Jesus' name. Oh, oh, this is something special right here, ladies and gentlemen. Worship the Lord with me right now. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name.